Good morning, everyone. A fairly small group today. Uh, I guess the word got out that I was up. Uh, I'm just, there's nothing wrong with some self-deprecatory humor. No, just sir. But, but seriously, it is a holiday weekend, and uh, a lot going on, folks traveling. Some visitors today, which is great, too. A wedding, and in fact, Kathy and I have to depart rather quickly today after I finish, so it's not because I'll be ducking any questions, comments, or corrections that you might have, because I'm always happy to hear those. So you can always reach me by, by text or, or email, so uh, feel free uh, uh, to do that. But it, it is uh, Memorial Day weekend, tomorrow the observance of Memorial Day, and I really appreciated and was moved by what Sean had to say in Sunday school uh, this morning. I was thinking, you know, reflecting on this, I, growing up locally, just up the road here in, in, in Mount Healthy, Memorial Day was just another day off school most of the time, you know, and it was, it, it's, back in those days, we started school later and got out of it later, so Memorial Day was a nice break right before the school year ended, and I thought about it that way as pretty much as a, uh, any other holiday for many years, and over the years, too, uh, it's been kind of conflated with Veterans Day a little bit, um, recognizing all veterans, and it's never uh, a miss to, to thank folks for their service, but this day is special to remember those who gave their lives in, in, in service to our country, and it really came home to me, uh, I think, especially uh, during my years of service. I know most know that I spent many years in the Navy, but I started out in the Army, not by my decision, but that was someone else's in those days. But um, And uh, I really came to appreciate more what it actually means. And I think what really drove it home to me was the uh, first time I stood before the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., and I looked for the names of men, that um, classmates from high school and college, and some that I had the honor to serve with and to actually see them. And it really, really brought it home uh, to me in a, in, a, in, a, in a real way. And there's a, a, a website called The Virtual Wall, and it's, it's, it's for uh, Vietnam remembrances, where you can go and, and it's, you can find um, individuals listed by unit who lost their lives during the war, men and women. Uh, and, um, and, and you can post notes. And so I, I went there one day. I'd heard about it, and I was found there, and I uh, was especially thinking of one man in particular, uh, Staff Sergeant Richard Neal, who was the uh, acting first sergeant of our field artillery battery during my time in Vietnam, and was killed in a rocket attack at the uh, uh, Budop Special Forces Camp in December of 1969, something that has stayed with me ever since. And uh, I went to that site, and I posted a brief note about uh, Richard Neal uh, on there. And sometime after that, I remember how long it was, I got a letter from, uh, from the spokesman for a high school class in his hometown uh, in Texas. And they asked me for if I had any pictures, which I had a few, and any remembrances I might have about Richard Neal. And I sent them to them, and they put that into a tribute to him. It was something that was really special for me to be involved in. So I, I, among everyone else today, do like to remember those who um, gave their lives for our country in, in various conflicts over the, over the years. But we are in Romans chapter 15. I had um, asked Jeremy to read the first six verses there, which were in Evan's uh, um, message last week, to kind of set the stage as we move into what's really the last big presentation 
in, in the book of Romans that we'll be looking at today. Uh, now, I've got to warn you, the, uh, the calendar says uh, 8 through 13, I believe. Well, guess what? It's 8 through 33. So for those of you who thought, we'll be out of here quickly, Mike's only got five verses, well, I can work those pretty hard. Uh, We've actually got a little bit more than that. I thought it was 8 through 23, and it was interesting because when Phil called me and asked me to do this passage, I said, sure, and I, I wrote down 8 through 23. And then I saw the calendar said 8 through 13. I said, well, Phil, which is it? He said, well, actually, it's 8 through 33. So anyway, uh, here's my advice. Fasten your seatbelts. Now, it's not going to be quite that, uh, that bad, I don't think, but um, um, I've got to share a seatbelt story. I may have told it here before. If I did, uh, I ask your indulgence, but I... In my years in the military and working for the government, I, I, I flew a lot on foreign aircraft. And I remember on one occasion getting on board a, a Ilyushin, an IL-18, uh, Soviet, well, Russian at that time. Um, was that after? I, I can't remember the exact timing of it. I think it was after. Um, aircraft. And you get on there and they flash the no-fastened uh, seatbelt sign. The problem was, I looked down, and there was no seatbelt, and there was no seatbelt anywhere in that cabin. So, you know, you, you couldn't have fastened it even if you wanted to. And we used to jokingly refer to Russia as a country OSHA never discovered because of some of their practices are quite different from ours. But uh, you should need a seatbelt today, really, unless we hit a little turbulence or you get a little drowsy, then maybe you wish you would have one. But we'll work, work our way through this passage this morning and, and see what Paul has for us, hear what the Lord has us through uh, the Apostle Paul. But let's begin um, by reading verses 7 through 12, because this is really the last um, that closes out Paul's major presentation here in, in, the, um, um, in, in the gospel. So Romans 15, beginning in verse 7. Therefore receive or accept or welcome, it varies by translation, one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. Let's ask God's blessing one more time on our uh, time here this morning. Father, again, we just thank you for this day and each day that you give us. We thank you for your goodness to us, and especially for our salvation through your son. And we thank you that we can remember his death for us a bit earlier. Because as we think of Memorial Day, Father, and our thoughts do go to those who gave their lives in service to our country, there's a memorial we, we celebrated just a bit earlier, and that's the death of your son for us, for our sins, Father. And we thank you for the salvation that is ours through his death forth. We thank you, too, for his word and for this time to go through it. Uh, you know the faults and weaknesses of the one who speaks. So, Father, let your Holy Spirit bring to us a message you would have us to hear this morning and help us to be not only attentive to your word, but obedient to it. Uh, as well. Well, in this final section of the major core, uh, I guess, presentation of Paul here in the book of Romans, he again turns to Christ as our example. And once again, he encourages acceptance. That was something we saw repeated a number of times in chapter 14, and, re and also Evan talked about it last time as well. Both the weak and the strong are to accept, or welcome, or receive one another. And that is what it means to follow Christ. He accepted us we are to accept uh, one another. I was thinking that the result of all spiritual growth, both individually and corporately, is glory to God. 
And unity among believers brings glory to God. You know, uh, and this is something, again, that was emphasized in Evan's presentation, uh, the importance of this last week. Disunity and disagreement do not glorify God. And in fact, they rob him of glory. And here in verse 7, Paul tells us that Christian unity is based on our justification in Christ. It may not have struck you that way as we first read it, but let's read verse 7 again. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. It's only as we understand that we are accepted by Christ and live in response to that that we will accept others. And why, why is that? I think that if we grasp justification and what it is all about, that we are accepted in spite of our deficiencies and flaws, we will be enabled to accept others despite their deficiencies and flaws. And we're not talking about here uh, refusal to confront someone about patterns of sin in their life. That's not what we have in mind. But there may be some differences there. There may be some rough edges that we perceive on others, and they perceive on us, many differences of opinion on certain things that were mentioned even last time, whether it be food or drink or something like that. But really, it should not be too difficult to extend the hand of friendship to one who is loved by the one that we honor and worship. And again, that's something that is repetitive in these closing chapters of the book of Romans. And today's jargon, and at risk of, and don't want to be flippant here, we might say any friend of his is a friend of mine. And this spirit of brotherly kindness will bring praise to God. And he's the one who makes it all possible in the first place. Well, the first or the supreme example of ministry must always be Jesus Christ. And so, again, Paul points to Christ as a great example of this kind of service. His ministry of acceptance took two forms, one to the Jews and another to the Gentiles, as you read in our opening verses. He came, first of all, to minister to the Jews that through Israel he might be able to minister to the Gentiles. He was born a Jew, followed the rites and customs of the Jews. He was circumcised to identify with God's covenant with Abraham. And verse 8 tells us that Christ became a servant of the Jews to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. He confirmed the promises made to the patriarchs by fulfilling them. And then Paul quotes four Old Testament passages. And if you have a study Bible, if you don't have one with you, you have one at home, it'll tell you in the margin uh, what those passages are. I'll just mention them. I'm not going to turn to each one because we've got the summaries of them here um, in our passage. But Psalm 1849, Deuteronomy 32.43, Psalm 117.1, and Isaiah 11.10. And these show us that Gentiles were part of God's redemptive plan from the beginning. The Lord originally planned for his blessing to Abraham to become the means of extending his grace to the whole world. The Israelites were to settle in the promised land and become a living example of God's government, one so steeped in grace that sojourners would never want to leave. And the kings of Israel were to remain obedient to God, leading all their followers in worship and eventually bringing Gentiles under his worldwide theocracy or the worldwide uh, rule of God. But where the descendants of Abraham failed, the Israelites disappointed, and the kings disobeyed, Jesus Christ succeeded. The righteousness of God was ultimately revealed in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns, 
the world will be recreated all the way down to the atom. I came across that phrase and it really struck me. Recreated all the way down to the atom to reflect that righteousness. So if we want to know what the future new kingdom will look like, we need only look to its king. And during his earthly ministry, the king was a servant. Well, Paul concludes this final section of his teaching with a benediction in, in verse 13. We'll read it again, but we just read a little bit ago, did we not? It's our uh, memory verse here uh, for this month. But verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The believer's hope is not a tentative wish that may or may not come true. Christian hope is an assured expectation based on the promises of God. And we've had a number of those enumerated here in the book of Romans. And one just a little bit earlier in verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Because God always keeps his promises, we have a guaranteed future that awaits us. And so we can endure what comes our way. We can endure trials with joy and peace. Uh, that or so that there in the verse indicates a cause-effect relationship. That's, that's kind of a catchy little term, but I guess that's what it, what it is. And note that God does the filling. He's the one who fills us with joy and hope. What's our responsibility? It's to believe, and we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, with these verses, Paul really does bring to an end the major presentation of what he has to say in this letter. <clears throat> the balance of the epistle addresses several personal matters and outlines Paul's future plan. So we'll take a look at these. Sometimes we tend to skip through quickly the ending uh, of books. We haven't actually got to the final conclusion yet. That'll come in, in 16. But there's quite a bit here, I think, for us um, to consider. So we'll do this in pieces. I didn't read the whole passage this time because of the length of it. I thought we would just go ahead and do it in sections <clears throat> as we got to them. Excuse me, give me a drink here. Let's look first at verses 14 <clears throat> through 16. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points <clears throat> as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Well, throughout the letter, Paul has been writing to the church in Rome. Now he begins to write about them. Although Paul had never visited or ministered to the Christian congregation in Rome, chapter 16, as we'll see, reveals that he knew a number of them personally, and he was confident that they were a healthy church. What was the basis of that confidence? What was the Roman believer's character? And it exhibited three qualities that he talks about here, beginning with their goodness. Uh, the word goodness describes a positive moral and ethical purity. It includes a number of things. It would include kindness, thoughtfulness, and even charity toward those in need. And the word full here means filled to overflowing. But the first thing he talks about is their goodness. The second quality is their knowledge. They were filled with such knowledge as to be completely informed and adequately aware. Now, they were not omniscient. When you get that, they had all knowledge. It doesn't mean they knew everything. 
And what Paul is saying here is that the brothers and sisters in Rome demonstrated a mature command of Christian truth. And they understood the issues that impacted their corner of the world. And he may have had something even more specific in mind, again, given the thrust of the letter, and that is their insight into God's saving purpose. But he talks about their goodness, and he talks about their knowledge. And the third quality is their ability to admonish one another. Now, the, t- the, you know, the term translated admonished is a compound of two words, two Greek words, the words mind and to place. And I don't always like to take the words together and put them together and come up with a word because sometimes you do not get what the, what the actual new uh, meaning is. But here I, I think you do because the idea of placing something in the mind of another was how the Greeks understood the process of education. And so the, from what Paul is saying here, the Roman Christians were able to impart understanding uh, to set right, uh, to lay on the heart. There are a number of ways that we could uh, describe it. And they were able to do it in a way as to influence not merely the intellect or one's way of thinking, but also the will and the disposition. And so I think in that connection, this word takes on such senses as to admonish, to warn, to remind, and to correct. And here it may describe the act of counseling someone about avoiding or stopping an improper course of conduct. But when you think about it, these three qualities essentially describe a mature Christian. And consider the impact churches can have when they are composed of people who are morally clean and ethically pure, that have a mature command of Christian truth, and are adequately aware of the issues that are confronting them, and then able to educate one another, and to hold each other accountable. Well, after Paul's long discourse on the bases of the gospel, and that's what the the book of Romans is really all about, one might think that the Roman believers were not mature in their faith or were in dire need of instruction. So there in verses 15, 16, as we read, Paul clarifies that he did not write this bold Christian manifesto to provide new information, but to help them retrace the steps of their own spiritual journey, to help them appreciate the inestimable knowledge of the grace they had received, to confirm them in the security of their salvation, and to prompt them to action. Because Paul hoped to join them. That's one of the things we get from reading this section in evangelizing Rome. And he saw even more lying beyond their western horizon. So then after having identified that critter running across there. Having I didn't guess you didn't really need to know that. It's no longer running across there. <laughs> it might have been running off me for all I know. <laughs> it was very little, very little. Uh, having identified the, uh, the Roman believers as worthy partners, he then shares his vision and plan for the next phase of his ministry. And we have that in verses 17 through 21. So let's, let's read those. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient, and mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written... To whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. 
Well, despite his impressive resume of qualifications and accomplishments, Paul thinks of himself as merely a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He remains unwilling to take any credit for the deeds of his master. The miracles Paul performed were genuine because the power of the Holy Spirit within him was real. Gentiles had been won, and their obedience because, uh, was genuine. Um, it was seen in what they said and did because God chose to preach through Paul. And note that word fully there in verse 19. Paul declares that he had fully preached the gospel in between Jerusalem and Illyricum, which comprised most of the territory that Rome fully controlled at that time. So I think what he's basically saying here is something like this. My job in this part of the world is complete, and I leave it in very capable hands. And then in verse 21, he quotes Isaiah 52:15 to underscore his primary motivation, and that was to go where the gospel had not yet been heard. Paul's vision always seemed to exceed his horizon, compelling him to go where the gospel was unknown. And then, two, Paul's dreams were always greater than his memories. You know, memories can either anchor us to the past or they can thrust us forward to new challenges. And Paul's memories of past success did not slow him down one single bit. On the contrary, they inspired him to achieve more for the sake of Christ. Now, he does recall his past success and abiding vision here, but that's not to boast or to garner admiration for himself, but to lay the foundation for his proposal. I think what he's saying in effect here is something like this. My vision has always been to proclaim the gospel where it has never been heard. By the grace of God, this ministry has been successful, and I have done all I can do to the east of Rome. So we're going to see then... um, What follows as Paul now looks to the future. Verses 22 through 25. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Well, in the past, his ministry had kept him occupied with necessary work in the east, but now new plans lay to the west, in Rome and even far beyond there. And having affirmed that the uh, church in Rome was a valuable partner and having presented himself as someone trustworthy to represent them in ministry, he graciously suggests a joint venture here. I think that's what he is, is doing in this passage. He planned to complete his current mission and uh, to deliver the famine and relief collection to the church. We're going to talk about that here in just just a minute uh, in Jerusalem and then set out for Spain. Uh, Paul's typical strategy for evangelizing a region began by establishing a base of operations in a large city along major trade routes. For example, Ephesus allowed him access to supplies by sea and allowed the safety and stability of government and also established roads and inroads into the Roman province of Asia. And the same was true of Corinth, from which he evangelized Macedonia. So using Rome as a launching point, Paul, I think, had a a couple of potential missions in mind. And here I don't know for sure, for certain, 
Uh, I'll suggest these, these two here. He could have boarded a ship in Rome and sailed directly from the region we now call Spain. That was one, one way that it could have been done. That area had been conquered by Rome. It was much like the American was described, has been described as the American West in about 1840, uh, filled with potential but largely untamed. But perhaps it would be more in keeping with Paul's history to see Spain as symbolic of his desire to evangelize the West. His work up to this point had been in the East, but now they'll do that, move that work to the West, working his way through northern Italia, as it was called, in present-day France, and ultimately crossing the Pyrenees into claim Hispania or Spain for Christ. Because Paul did not dream on a small scale, and the landmass he planned to evangelize exceeded the territory of his first three missionary journeys, if that indeed was the way that he was thinking about going about it. And think, too, about the hardship uh, that he had already experienced in the past that might prepare him for what would be coming in the future. And we can uh, just turn here for a moment uh, to give you a break from listening to me. Uh, and, and we'll go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and read verses 24 through 28. If I can get my pages turned here, here we go. All right, describe me some of the experiences he had along the way on his missionary journeys. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things that comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. I think I have a rough day once in a while. And I read that, read that particular list there. But this is what might have been in store for him till, still to come in the future. Now, that had been in what we might call the civilized part of, of the Roman Empire. And his plans would take him to the fringes of the so-called Pax Romana, uh, the Roman peace, as it's called, and beyond that, where he would be at the mercy of, uh, of barbarians, people who answered to no one. So, that, you know, having all that in mind of what had happened, this could have been what he was looking at um, in the future. Let's read verses 26 through <clears throat> uh, 29. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I form this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. For I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ." Now, Paul is talking about a special offering that had been taken up during his missionary journey, especially from the churches in Macedonia, to help out the church in Jerusalem that had been feeling the effects of a famine. The folks were really hurting there, and he was really determined to get that uh, gift to them. And you can read some of the details about that in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But the Gentile believers in Greece viewed their sharing of material wealth as a mere token of the debt they owed Jerusalem for the gift of the gospel. And I think Paul's implying here that Rome also owed a debt of gratitude. And one way that could be honored was by helping his mission to rescue other Gentiles. Now, Paul seems certain here uh, 
of his visit to Rome, but he could not have imagined the circumstances that would have taken him there. After delivering the famine relief funds he had collected on this third journey, Paul was falsely accused by Jewish leaders in the temple, the very men he formerly served while persecuting Christians, and then arrested. After several hearings, a foiled assassination plot, months in protective custody, and a lengthy trial, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen to have his case heard in Rome. And you can read the details of that in the latter chapters of the, books of, of the book of Acts. So Paul did reach his intended destination only later than he had planned and under the protection of Roman guards. Well, let's read up the concluding section here this morning. That's verses 30 through 33. Now, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God, and may be refreshed together with you. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul pleads with the church in Rome to begin their partnership with him by praying. That's always a good place to start. Uh, the Greek, uh, it's interesting here. I didn't notice, I didn't really, hadn't really thought of this until I was looking more closely at this passage and getting ready for it. <laughs> Verse 30, mine says, I beg you through the Lord Jesus Christ and through uh, the love of the Spirit. Some translations say have for or for the sake of. And this is interesting here because there are a few folks sitting in the audience here that can, that can testify to the fact that the Greek preposition dia, which is what is used here, has two meanings, and those meanings, I see one smile back there already. Uh, Jay, was that you? Uh, <laughs> depending on which case is used. We won't go into what, what that exactly means, but it, it changes the meaning. It can either mean because of or on account of or for the sake of, or it can mean through. And here it clearly calls for the meaning through, so I'm not really sure how they got to that uh, translation of for or for the sake of in some of the translations there. But clearly, agency is implied here. They were to approach the Father through the Son and through the Spirit. And furthermore, Paul urges brothers and sisters in Rome to strive together with him. That word's kind of interesting. It means to agonize together with, but to strive together with him. As members of a team might strenuously compete together to achieve a victory. I watched a, te- I watched a team last night um, uh, compete together for a victory, and I found out later that my wife sent, uh, posted a picture on Facebook of uh, a picture of uh, myself and my, my two sons uh, watching the FCC Cincinnati play last night. They did play hard, but they didn't win. But anyway, that's, that's, that's a concept here uh, that we have. As team members of a team might strenuously compete to, uh, to achieve a victory. Now, Paul here is not overstating his desire for their earnest prayer. Although he felt duty-bound, to deliver that famine relief fund to Jerusalem. He had serious misgivings about his safety upon returning there. Uh, Later during his voyage from Corinth to Jerusalem, he called the church leaders in Ephesus to meet with him and to pray with him before he put back out to sea. But I think it's noteworthy how Paul regularly solicits the prayers of believers for his special needs and circumstances, and I think that's a good lesson for us. He realizes that faces unfriendly to the gospel of Christ await him in Jerusalem. He knows how much he needs the prayers of the saints for deliverance and prayer the Jews, that the Jews would accept the Gentile gift that he was uh, bringing them and that at last he might visit 
the Roman believers in God's will. He trusted the Roman Christians, put great faith and, and, and confidence in them. <clears throat> I just want to stop for a minute about appreciating prayer. And as a state, as I usually like to do, but forgot to start out with today, to express my appreciation for all of you who prayed for me this week, some of you specifically mentioned it to me and others who did not but prayed for me anyway. I appreciate that very much, and I, and I pre- appreciate the challenge that appears in our, our calendar on a monthly basis to pray for those who prepare to teach the word here, not just, not just during a Bible hour, but those un- sometimes unappreciated Sunday school teachers that are working with the young, getting ready for VBS, getting ready for, for Bible camp, but for all who preach the word, it is just indispensable, folks, that you do that, and I personally greatly appreciate it. Well, Paul was undoubtedly the most pioneering of the apostles. The biblical record shows that he logged more miles, planted more churches, trained more leaders, and wrote more scripture than any other person in his generation. But we rarely, if ever, find him alone. He surrounded himself with gifted, driven people who shared his obligation to preach the gospel and to strengthen churches. He sought out partners he could wholeheartedly trust, those who would not settle for anything less than complete devotion. And when he found them, when he found these trustworthy co-laborers, he was quick to place them where they would have the greatest impact. And you see that over and over again as you read through the New Testament. Paul knew his vision to blaze new trails through the Roman frontier could only be realized with the help of dependable partners. Careful and sensible planning does not demonstrate a lack of trust in God's providence. But plans must always be subject to the Lord's control and alteration, just as Paul's were. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. As we noted earlier, Paul did go to Rome, and the government paid his way. I don't know about that all-expenses-paid trip there, uh, you know, given the circumstances. While fighting false charges leveled against him by his former colleagues and dodging assassination attempts, he was transported to Rome under Roman guard, under guard to have his case heard by the Emperor Nero. We can only speculate as to how his plans might have unfolded. We don't know, because how does the book of Acts end? It ends with him under house arrest and a Roman soldier guarding him there uh, in Rome. But true to his character and sense of mission, Paul turned his circumstance into an opportunity to evangelize the palace guard. I want to turn just for a moment here. If you'd rather not turn, it's okay. I'm just going to go ahead and read a verse in Philippians chapter 1. And that is Philippians 1 and verse 12. 1, 12, and 13. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard do all the rest in my change in my changer in Christ. Some of his, his greetings at the end of books, he talks about uh, those in Caesar's household, maybe not his actual family, but those around him. But he had an impact even there. And that's, you know, he could turn that circumstances into an opportunity uh, to share the gospel, which was very characteristic of Paul. Well, to wrap up, uh, my conclusion today is titled Lessons in Effective Ministry. Lessons in Effective Ministry. In this passage, Paul explains the characteristics of his ministry, and that's what gives us this basis of these um, lessons in effective ministry. Two start with the letter G, two with the letter P. I think you'll be able to pick them out. The first one, Paul's ministry was centered in the gospel. 
We had that there in verse 16. I think the images of priestly service offering up the evangelized Gentiles is his sacrificial offering. And it's a beautiful thought, really, that Paul views his service in the gospel as an act of worship. Secondly, Paul's ministry was done for God's glory, gene number two, and we saw that there in verse 17. Paul ascribes the glory for what has been done and said by him solely to Christ. Though he has reason, humanly speaking, to be proud of his work, Paul did not serve and suffer as he did just to make a name for himself, for he had a much higher purpose in mind. He wanted to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, Paul's ministry was done by God's power. P number one, verses 18 and 19. The Holy Spirit empowered Paul to minister and enabled him to perform mighty signs and wonders. And the miracles that God gave Paul to do were signs and that they came from God and revealed God uh, to others. Signs and wonders is a phrase rooted in the authentication of Moses' ministry at the time of the Exodus. We went through Exodus not too long ago uh, during our Wednesday night time together. Uh, God periodically gave such miracles at critical junctures of redemptive history, such as the Exodus, the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha, the preserving of his people in the time of Daniel, and the ministry of Christ and the apostles. These events are unusual. They're not normal, and they point to the successive stages of redemptive history and the new revelation that accompanies them. And fourth, Paul's ministry was done according to God's plan. P number two, verses 20 through 24 summarize that. God had a special plan for Paul to follow. He was not to preach when the other apostle had ministered. And note that Paul describes his ministry very naturally in Trinitarian terms with reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, each of these purposes is still applicable today. The specifics, the methods, they may change to meet challenging historical and cultural situations. But the underlying purposes that make ministry effective are the same for us today as they are or were for the Apostle Paul. Our ministry should be centered in the gospel, done for God's glory, done by God's power, and done according to God's plan. Let's pray together. Father, again, we just thank you for this time that we could spend in your word and, Father, we're thankful for it, for what it tells us about yourself, about your son, but also about how we should live our lives. So, Father, help us to be obedient to it and to, to seek to make it practical in our lives each day. Now, be with us as we go from here. Many will be traveling to the various areas and just ask for safety there and bring us back together next time we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.